Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. I'm going to do a little breakaway from Luke this week. And I want to bring you a message that I've entitled, The Blessed Life. The Blessed Life. This being Father's Day, I wanted to look into and draw your attention as fathers as to what it is should be the focus and the pursuit of your life. And surely this is going to be applicable to all of us here this morning. But since this day only comes around once a year, I want to take a little time and address those of us who are fathers in a little bit more detail. Because fathers, you are the single most influential man in the world to your children, whether you want to be or whether you don't want to be. And so we have to ask the question of what should be the focus and pursuit of your life? What should you model to your children as to where your greatest satisfaction and your greatest happiness should come from? Because there's a multitude of, this, of things in this world that seem to promise enjoyment and pleasure for us. There are numerous things that we think that are going to bring us happiness and gratification in this life. And we're all tempted in one way or another to pursue possessions or maybe to pursue some pleasure or maybe to pursue some power and prestige. But sadly, many a man has pursued all of those things unto death or only to get to the end of their life and admit that all of that was done in vanity. And so I want to begin by reading this passage and really setting it before our minds and our hearts to consider exactly our greatest joy. Where does our greatest satisfaction lie? And so I want to look at this particular psalm, uh, what it has, and what I believe is a very clear-cut path for us to tread upon as we go about in our daily lives. There's no mystery here. There's no ambiguity as to where that true blessedness lies. And so if you're there with me in Psalm chapter 1, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able to do so. Reading from Psalm chapter 1. This is the inspired, the inerrant, and the infallible Word of the living God. Psalm 1 says this, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We just pray that it might encourage us and instruct us and help us to have a right focus as to where our true and lasting joy comes from. Lord, help us to not be thinking about the cares of this world in this moment and this time. But let us be singularly focused on learning what you have for us today. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If we were to look at the world around us, we would be able to see that there is just an incredible amount of diversity in terms of people all over this world. There's a multitude of skin colors and pigmentations. There's uh, different heights and weights and body proportions. 
There's the athletic, and then there's the not-so-athletic. There's numerous languages that people speak. There's different cultures, customs, and manners by the way people live. There's economic diversity from the richest of the rich to the poorest of the poor. Some possess a greater intellectual capacity than others. There are a diversity of people who adhere to different political systems, such as Republican or Democrat or even socialist or libertarian. There is a multitude of ways in which we could look upon humanity and see great diversity all around us, but not God. As we just read from those six verses from Psalm chapter 1, it becomes very clear to us that we have all of life and all of humanity boiled down for us into just two. There are just two different types of people. There are two different paths in life to take. And there are two different, different destinations upon which we will arrive. As we examine this portion of Scripture, the contrast between the two could not be more clear and more stark than what we have before us. One of which is blessed. The other is cursed. One's like an immovable tree, and the other is like chaff with which the wind blows. One is fruitful, and the other is barren. One is sustained by rivers, and the other is in a dry and desert land. One will be known by the Lord, and the other will perish. And so, although we may be able to look at this world around us and see that there are hundreds and even thousands of ways upon which we could look at humanity, in God's eyes, and through looking through the lens of Psalm chapter 1 here, there are just but two. The reality is that God looks down upon mankind as being in either one of two camps. Now, first of all, you need to know that Psalm 1 was not the first psalm ever written. And the psalms are not arranged in a chronological order. Of the 150 psalms in the Bible, the first psalm that was ever written was Psalm 90. And it was written by Moses some 400 years before the writing of Psalm 1. The last psalm of the Bible that was written was Psalm 126, some 1,000 years later or after the writing of Psalm 90. And so the compilers of the psalms arranged all of the 150 psalms, and they did so with an intended purpose and an intended design. And so they placed this psalm here in the lead position because it is here that we get introduced to the great theme of the entire Bible. In fact, it's what the great reformer Martin Luther, who remarked about the psalms, he called this, the, uh, the psalms was the Bible in miniature. But the great theme of the psalms is that there are not many different types of people in this world, but there are only two. There are not many ways to God, but only one. And yet it is here that we learn of those two ways before us. And so as we open the doorway to the book of the Psalms, we're immediately confronted with two contrasting hallways upon which to choose. And that is either the way of blessedness or the way of sure destruction for the wicked. And so it's only fitting that I begin here and ask you, what corridor are you heading down? Which path are you taking? Are you entering through the narrow gate in the narrow way? Or are you entering through the broad gate and the broad path that leads to destruction? 
Are, are you living your life in such a way that you are pleasing God? Or are you only living for yourself and for your pleasures and your passions? If you were to die today, would God be able to look upon your life and say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or would he say to you, depart from me, for I never knew you? Because this passage is not ambiguous. It's not unclear that there is only one of two ways that you can live your life. There are only one of two destinations in which you will arrive, and one of two people whom you can serve, either God or yourself. And that would become even more clear to us if we would continue reading into chapter 2, we would see the the bookend for chapter 1, verse 1, and it's found in chapter 2, verse 12, where it declares to us where this blessing can be found, where our joy and contentment can truly be found. It says, how blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. And so those who pay homage to the Son by living all of their life in submission to Him, by surrendering all that you have to all that He is, by living, as it were, by yielding your life up to complete allegiance to Jesus Christ will bring about the greatest and the most lasting happiness that you can truly find. So let's begin to look at this psalm in a little bit more detail. And it's broken down pretty simply and very distinctly for us. In verse 1, we learn what the blessed man, what he is by what he doesn't do. In verse 2, we learn what a blessed man is by what he does do. In verse 3, we have a comparison. Verse 4, we have a contrast. And then finally, 5 and 6, we have a conclusion. But notice, first of all, in verse 1, it says, How blessed is the man. Now, straight away, we are confronted with that which every person in this world longs to obtain. Every soul, every conscience, every person has this desire deeply placed within their heart. We don't naturally like pain. We don't like being sorrowful. We don't like being in any kind of discomfort. But all men naturally hunger and thirst after happiness and contentment. There is no one alive that wishes that things would not go well for themselves. Just as a a sick man longs for health or a prisoner longs for freedom, all men and all women naturally desire true happiness. And that's what this word blessed means. It's a very expressive word, and it means to have a deep-seated joy. It's an internal, supernatural contentment. There's a a fulfillment or a serenity within this person's heart. Now, it doesn't mean that there's always a smile on this person's face. It doesn't mean that they never experience any sorrow or discomfort. And it's not talking about a mere feeling of happiness or surface emotion that kind of comes and goes. But it is talking about a comfort of conscience, a solid peace, an internal joy that cannot be shaken from its foundation, and it does not waver when trials and worldly assaults come their way. How many times have we seen on the news where an actor or a comedian or a musician or what have you, they seem to have it all. They've got cars, they've got houses, they've got fame, they've got popularity. They're making movies and they're in music videos and they're all over the TV. And then they end up taking their own life because their happiness that appeared to be true happiness was not. Inside, their soul and their mind was in actual turmoil. They had no inner peace. 
But this word blessed in the original is in the plural form, meaning that there are a multitude of blessings available to this man upon which we're about to read. In fact, if you would read the original Hebrew, the word for blessed is actually written twice. Blessed, blessed. You could actually translate this phrase, oh, the blessed man. It's very expressive, but it's used to emphasize or magnify what the writer is about to say. Just as Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, I say to you, when he was about to speak to something of very, uh, that had some absolute importance and truth in it, the writer of Psalm 1 wants you and I to know that this is where true blessedness is found. He wants you to know that there is an intensity and an overflow of our hearts that cannot contain this true blessedness. It's not as if there's been this little eyedropper full of joy that has filled our hearts, but rather the floodgates have been opened and it is poured into our hearts to overflowing. And yet even the greatest man who ever lived and preached the greatest sermon that was ever preached in Matthew chapter 5, the Lord Jesus, he expanded the use of this word when he had on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And so, in reality, what Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount was to take this psalm about a truly blessed man, and he magnified it, and he amplified it into what it looks like practically. But notice that the blessings that he listed here, that they are still, you are poor in spirit, you are mourning, you are being insulted and persecuted. The blessedness resides on the inside of you, and it's not moved by anything on the outside or external circumstances. In fact, it has such a, an intensity to it, it has such a, a deep-seated commit, contentment that it is unmoved by whatever circumstance you may find yourself in. It is so intense that if you would happen to find yourself in a Roman prison chained up to the Praetorian Guard you would still be able to write, as Paul did in Philippians 4.4, you would say, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. That is deep-seated blessedness. No matter what your circumstance, no matter where you find yourself, you are content in knowing who your Lord and Savior is. Your joy is not found in your circumstances. Now think about your past week this week. Did you let the roller coasters of this life and the ups and downs of this life rob you of your joy in Christ? Did you find yourself in such a situation where you felt, felt like things are just kind of spinning out of control and you start to overwhelm you to such an extent that you lost your joy? Did you let uh, the circumstances of this world control your contentment? Then you may have tried to find your happiness in earthly things rather than in Jesus Christ. But then notice in verse 1, 
There's a series of three negative statements about the blessed man when it says that, first of all, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So first of all, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, what the psalmist is saying here is that the happy man will not look at the devices and the philosophies of men to secure his happiness. He doesn't take in worldly beliefs. He doesn't look to secular means to find wisdom and answers to life. There's this separation that exists between the godly man and the world's influence. Now, I'm not calling on you to be an isolationist. We're called to be in the world, but we're not to be of it. But rather, there should, be, there should be some insulation between you and them. And that is to say that whenever you watch a TV program, or whenever you read the news, or whenever you interact with an unbeliever, you're doing so through the filter of God's Word in your mind. You're taking every thought captive and and taking every lofty speculation and running it through the sieve of Scripture. Every thought, every proposition, every worldview that is proposed to you is analyzed as to what God would say about it. Because in all honesty, Christianity, the Christian life, is a battle for your mind. And we are called not to be conformed to this world, but rather we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're called to set our minds on things above and not on things of earth, like Colossians 3.2 tells us. And so that means that the truly blessed man will not walk in the counsel of the wicked or to literally go along with the world's ideas and the world's philosophies. And so, your Facebook and Twitter posts, they have to match the life you say you have in Jesus Christ. The things that you say you like or the things that you value on social media or, or you retweet or post or whatever you have you, they match who you say you are in Jesus Christ. You're walking the walk. You're talking the talk. And there's no duplicity in your life. And that's what the word walks means. It's a very common word that describes the manner of one's life as we travel this world from cradle to grave. The second negative statement about what a blessed man is, it says that he does not stand in the path of sinners. In other words, he does not do what they do. He does not go where they go. The things that sinners partake of and participate in, the godly man will find himself far from them. And so, as to not be enticed or or ensnared by them. And and the word stand here has in mind something that is firm and fixed, like a column or a statue. And the idea here is that the godly man does not place himself in a position so as to be picked up by a sinner so as to start to imitate them. If you start to frequent bars and clubs, you can find yourself in a place of danger. If you head to the casino and you just take in the sights and sounds, it's not going to be too long that you're going to start plinking away your life and throwing your money away little by little. The godly man will avoid these places of temptation so as to not even remotely attempt to imitate them. One such place that I've had to learn to stay away over the years, I think we went there seven to ten years ago in Columbus, is the Arnold Classic. (laughs) It is great to be healthy. It's great to want to eat good things and to work out and do all those things. But that was such a hyper-sexualized, body-worshipping event 
that it's not worth going to or, and be there to get trapped by their philosophies and their ideologies about the body and health. And we don't go. It's a no-no for us anymore. But the next thing that we see that the godly man does not do is that he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. And the idea here is that the scoffer has sort of taken up residence as in a, a throne or a position of judgment. They've kind of made themselves rulers and, and seated themselves in the position of a king. The scribes and the Pharisees in uh, Matthew 23, verse 2, the, they were accused as having seated themselves in the chair of Moses. And this denotes that the godly man, he doesn't elevate himself to a position of authority and determine what he thinks is right and holy and good. And notice the progression of the sinner here that we've gone through. He's progressed from walking in wickedness and practicing it in his life. Next, he starts to pick up companions and partake in the the, uh, wickedness. And then now, he's sitting in a seat of judgment over anyone who does not practice what he himself practiced. Now, how many times have we seen this in the news lately? How many times in this day and age have we seen a supposedly godly person come out of the closet, they pronounce their homosexuality, and then they set themselves upon a throne of judgment? And they tell everyone that, guess what? I've determined that the Bible doesn't say about it what it actually says about it. Homosexuality is not what you think it means. They've set themselves on a seat of a scoffer. How many times have we seen married people who've been married for several years, and then they get a hold of some sort of false teaching or false philosophy about how all of a sudden they're supposed to live their life for their own personal happiness, their ultimate joy, themselves, me, 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 me. And then they end up divorced, just trying to justify uh, themselves, and they disregard anything that you bring to them um, in terms of the Word of God about what it says in terms of marriage and divorce. They ignore it. They set themselves up because they want to justify themselves. But the godly man, he avoids those things. The godly man, he watches over his hearts and affections. The godly man considers what God would say about the movies he watches, about the music he listens to, about the things he spends his time and money on. Every aspect of the godly man's life is open to inspection, to God's inspection, rather. So, fathers, how would your life right now bear the inspection of God? What is it that you think that you are hiding from God? Are you on a, a slippery slope to sort of setting yourself up one day to be sitting in the judgment seat over God? Is there something in your life that would bring Christ to open shame? But notice what the godly man does do in the positive sense. In verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And so in order for a man to find his true happiness and his true contentment, the godly man not only submits himself to the guidance of the word of God, as it says in the first part of the verse, but then he also makes himself intimately familiar with it. This is the fortification that a man is going to build in his life to help and void the enticement of a sinful world. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And this is not a casual approach to the word of God. But the truly happy man meditates on it day and night. 
you know, there was a time in the past, in, in times of like the Puritans and those types of things, where people actually took the Word of God up in the morning and in the evening hours, and they saw that time as absolutely precious and necessary. And even think about when this psalm was written. Think about how much did they have in terms of the written Word of God. And yet the psalmist says he meditates upon it day and night. He may have only had access to the first five books of Moses at this time. And it's because the printed word at that time, it was not cheap. But think about how much more that we have in terms of written revelation. How much more do we have of the inspired word, but yet how much more do we neglect it? How many of us here will grab hold of this benediction? How many of us here, men and women, will be able to say that I delight in the law of the Lord? The truly happy man or woman will do this. This will be a blessed man. Matthew Henry said of this meditation, To meditate in God's word is to discourse with ourselves concerning the great things contained in it with a close application of mind, a fixedness of thought, till we be suitably affected with those things and experience the Savior and power of them in our hearts. This we must do day and night. We must have a constant habitual regard to the Word of God as the rule of our actions and the spring of our comforts, and we must have it in our thoughts. Accordingly, upon every occasion that occurs, whether night or day, No time is amiss for meditating on the Word of God, nor is there any time unseasonable for those visits. But then comes the comparison and the contrast of the truly happy man. The man who meditates upon the Word of God day and night, in verse 3 it says, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Now this isn't some wild tree. This isn't some Osage orange tree that popped up down by the creek bank. But this is a tree, if you'll notice, it says it has been planted. A tree that was selected and it's considered the property and placed at a place of nourishment to ensure its growth. As Charles Spurgeon described it, he said, this is a tree that has been planted by many waters in order that if one stream should dry up, He has another by which to draw his nourishment. The rivers of pardon and the rivers of grace and the rivers of promise and the river of communion with Christ will be his never failing source of supply. Because the godly man will sink his roots deep into the word of God and he will be constantly nourished by its covenants and its promises. When life's trials come their way, He looks to God as his strong tower and refuge. When affliction comes upon him, he relies on the grace that is sufficient for him. When sickness or suffering seems to be his constant companion, he's going to look forward to the blessed hope of one day being with Jesus Christ, and thus he bears forth the fruitfulness of being in God's word. Men, do you know such a fruitfulness? Does this describe your life? Then we're given the contrast in verse 4. And it's the complete opposite in their character and condition. It says, The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff 
which the wind drives away. Those who spurn the word of God, those who rely on their own morality and they neglect God, will be nothing more than chaff. And chaff is a worthless substance. And we've actually talked about this in Luke before. But typically, farmers would harvest their grain and they would come to a place with a wintering fork and they would throw it up into the air. And then the wheat that they would want actually was a little heavier. It would fall down into a pile because it had a little bit of weight to it. But the chaff, which was lighter, would be carried off by the wind. And so it is with those who reject God. Those who are in open rebellion, who day in and day out, they constantly shake their fist at God, will one day be driven away. And why is that? Because they have absolutely no foundation upon which to build their lives. They have nothing substantial to cling to when the judgment comes because they will have built their house on sinking sand rather than upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Listen, Christianity is not just a system of good ethics. Christianity isn't just one of many pathways to God. Christianity isn't just a means to use God as a a cosmic vending machine to get what you want when you're in a time of need or want. Christianity is about restoring a right relationship between you and God. And it's only through the mediating work of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins so that you no longer live for yourself. You live for the one who has bought and paid for you. Is that who you're living for today? Are you experiencing or expending the years of your life for knowing Jesus Christ and making him known? Or are you living for yourself? The famed missionary Nate Saint once said, People who do not know the Lord, they ask, Why in the world we waste our lives as missionaries? And they forget that they too are expending their lives. And when the bubble bursts, and they have nothing of eternal significance to show for the years they have wasted, we're all expending our lives. But what are you expending it for? So we have the conclusion In verse 5 and verse 6, it says, Therefore, meaning in conclusion, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The contrast could not be any more stark and apparent. There are but two destinies upon which we are all headed. There will be everlasting life for those who delight in the word of God, those who find their greatest satisfaction and pleasure in knowing God and obeying God, those who avoid worldly enticements, those who bridle their thoughts and constrain their passions and bring them into subjection to God, where there will be certain eternal judgment and condemnation for those who reject him. I wish I had more time this week to flesh more of this out. But I have to ask you men, you fathers, the point of all of this is, what are you pointing your children to as your greatest source of happiness and joy? Do they see a man who's more consumed with his work than he is with his God? Are they watching a man that's more concerned about his possessions than a man who is concerned about his relationship with Jesus Christ? Would they look upon you and say that my dad's greatest possession, his greatest passion is knowing the Lord Jesus Christ? 
When your children rise up in the morning and they have they ever come out of their room and they find you just immersed in the word of God? Have they ever opened your door and they find you on your knees before God? What are you modeling for your children as your true source of happiness and joy? J.C. Ryle said of this happiness that is found only in Jesus Christ, he said, The true Christian is the only happy man because he has sources of happiness entirely independent of this world. He has something which cannot be affected by sickness and by deaths, by private losses and public calamities. The peace of God which passes all understanding. He has a hope laid up for him in heaven. He has a a treasure which moth and rust cannot corrupt. He has a house which can never be taken down. His loving wife may even die, and his heart may feel rent of twain. His darling children may be taken from him, and he may be left alone in this cold world. His earthly plans may be crossed, and his health may fail. But all this time, he has a portion which nothing can hurt. He has one friend who never dies. He has a possession beyond the grave of which nothing can deprive him. His nether spring may fail, but his upper springs are never dry. This is real happiness. Fathers, may we find our true joy and our true commitment in our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. C.T. Sud said, only one life twill soon pass. Only what's done for Christ will truly last. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is contained in your word, Lord. We just pray that we would not just leave this place as hearers only, but as doers. We just pray that we might be found faithful to you, that we'd find you to be our all-consuming passion. Our fire would burn for knowing Jesus Christ and making him known. Help us to model that before our wives and our children and our families. And Lord, we do thank you for being a loving and kind Father, that we can approach you as such. What a miracle that is in and of itself. So God, we just pray you would rend our hearts this morning. Help us to have a hunger for your word. Help us to have a hunger for knowing you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.